So good morning, or if you're on the opposite side of the world, good evening. Um, my name is Greg Hutchins. You're not going to be able to see me, but that's me on the right-hand side. Shows my little neighborhood that I live in. We're going to talk about four ways to manage supplier risks today. Um, got a, probably a pretty deep background in this topic. Um, this is a little brief bio of who I am. I've been involved in managing supplier risks probably for 30 years, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, many companies now are outsourcing their supply and quality management. So we've run the quality part of an organization as an outsource provider for billion dollar companies. So what does that mean? They don't have an internal supplier quality department, so they outsource it. And quite often they outsource it to our company. So we've basically been doing supplier risk management for many years. And in this uh, seminar, we're gonna talk about our many lessons learned. So in today's presentation, we're gonna cover how supply management has been disrupted and is being disrupted even more. Second thing we're going to talk about is new sourcing and business models. The next thing we're going to talk about is the four elements of managing supplier risk. And as first, uh, the first piece of that is really accepting sourcing risks. Second part is diversify sourcing risk. Third part is sharing sourcing risk and finally managing it. Now, managing sourcing risk sometimes is also called controlling sourcing risk or mitigating sourcing risk. So this will be our presentation today. It'll cover about 30, 35 minutes. And if you've got questions, please put them in the chat and we'll address them either at the end of the presentation or send me an email and uh, this will be actually online and I'll answer them. So finally, we're gonna talk about the future of supply management or what we believe is the future supply management is really gonna be supply chain risk management. So let's get dive into it. This is a USA Today article that we pulled out, oh, just this week, I think it was June 30th. And the thing that's critical here is that most of the news these days really focuses on some type of risk. As you can see, I just circled five of the articles, but almost every article on the front page of uh, the, <laughs> the last week's USA Today really has the filter of risk. College is less accessible, smoky and smoky and uh, <laughs> hot summers, um, Florida immigration law, Forgiveness loans for students in the US have been denied. So anyway, the filter for a lot of our ways of seeing the world, a lot of the ways we make decisions, a lot of the ways we solve, prob solve, them, uh, solve problems is through the lens or the filter of risk. And that's important today because today we're gonna talk about supply chain risk management. So let's dive into it. 
here's a front page article from the Wall Street Journal just two days ago. And it basically says, here's how supply chains are being reshaped. Nearshoring, which basically means you're going to bring suppliers into your country. And we're seeing that all over the world. Um, what's going on? Well, first of all, how, how do we know that's happening? We have made in India, made in Canada, made in Mexico, made in the USA, made in China. Companies or countries rather want to bring manufacturing and design back into the country. Why? Lower risks. Because when you have a supplier 6,000 miles away, the longer the distance, the long higher the risk. Automation is another uh, challenge these days. Again, automation is another word for AI and or robotics. And again, that brings on risk. Supplier diversification, we're gonna talk about that a lot today because that's one of the tools we're gonna to use about managing supplier risk, sustainability. Almost all of the standards that are coming out that deal with climate change are risk-based. And what's happening is that companies and even our professions are having to adapt. And that's what we're gonna talk about is disruption. So let's talk about what is supply chain risk management and just define some critical terms. I got involved in purchasing something like 30, 35 years ago. Now at that time, we didn't have supply chain management. Every department had a purchasing department. And as the head of quality, <laughs> I basically was responsible for ensuring that the materials we bought were good. So all of the supply chain or supplier problems basically went to me. And it was my job to make sure that the quality and the technology part of the, of the things we bought were good. Uh, what do I mean by good? Uh, basically um, complied with specifications. The business side of that relationship was managed by purchasing. So let's go fast forward a couple of years. Purchasing became supply management, and then it became much broader supply chain risk management and design management. Anyway, you get the idea. The, the function of purchasing has evolved and has evolved very quickly and is still evolving. So a lot of the supply management programs now we think will become supply chain risk management. And as you can see by this definition, a big part of it is strategy. Now, why is that important? Well, 30 years ago, we basically bought products or purchased stuff through the purchasing department, and it was a transactional affair. They supplied product, we assumed that the product was good, and then we put it in an inventory and then used it. Pretty straightforward, very tactical, almost transactional. Somebody sold a product, we paid for it. Now, all of a sudden, supply chain management is a strategic issue. It deals with business models, it deals with operating models. It deals with how companies make money. Another definition of supply management is below. If I can get it up there, is really the coordinated effort of an organization to identify, monitor, and detect and mitigate threats. Another way to say that 
risks to the supply chain. Now, the other part of that definition that's really important is profitability. That's one reason why when I got involved in supplier quality and supplier uh, management, it was a transactional thing, a relationship. It was pretty straightforward. And we assumed, and that was the big thing, we assumed that all the products we got were good, meaning that they complied with specifications, complied with requirements. Well, over the years, that hasn't been the case. So now we have what we would call new supply management rules. And we're gonna go through a couple of them. And for this discussion, or the seminar today, we're really gonna talk about China. Uh, most of my experience on the West Coast of the US has been sourcing in uh, Asia mainly. Sometimes in South America, sometimes more, more often now in Mexico, in Canada and a little bit in Europe. So we're gonna talk about really in terms of today, what's going on with US-China trade and supply management. Uh, four years ago, I would have said that the US-China US trade relationship was pretty stable. Uh, there was always deficit, even four years ago, the deficits were running about 400 billion. Now, what does a deficit mean? That means we buy more stuff from China than China buys from us. And we could live with maybe 300, 200 billion, but it went up to about $400 billion per year. And then all of a sudden it became a political issue, a political issue of fairness, a political issue of, of, uh, uh, <laughs> of equivalence. Just, it became a political issue and things changed. And what happens is both sides, US and China started talking, positioning, posturing, and negotiating based on different assumptions. In other words, we saw the trade relationship between us and them a little bit differently. We saw it as a um, competitiveness issue. The Chinese saw it as a economic issue. They supply good product, probably often the best products in the world, and of course, since they had the best products at the lowest price, we should, they should basically be able to sell it anywhere around the world through free trade. But here's the challenge. There was a fundamental shift in perceptions, both on their part, China's part, and on our part. And this led to some disagreements. And what happened is trade and sourcing became weaponized on both sides. I'm not saying just simply us, but also from the Chinese side. And we're gonna talk about that today because that really, when something becomes weaponized, it becomes a risk, a risk to the US and a risk to the Chinese. And the question for our, at least today is, how do we in the US or basically any country manage supplier risk? So let me start with an example. And this is Apple's risk story. story. Uh, I'm not gonna read what's on the slide. I'm just gonna talk around that. Apple is an interesting company. Three years ago, they had a market capitalization, also called market cap of $1 trillion. This week, the market cap in three years went up to 3 billion. In other words, 
they tripled their value. But here's the problem. 90% or more of their iPhones, which is where they get their revenue, comes from China. What happened in the last three years? We had supply chain disruptions. We had COVID, unfortunately. We had work stoppages. We had factories that just simply shut down. We had ships that couldn't deliver products to the US or on the Chinese part, they basically said they would buy so much material. Specifically, I'll use the example grain. Every year as part of the negotiating uh, trade agreement with China, they said they would buy so much grain from the US. The challenge is they didn't buy the grain. Uh, they may, you know, some years they bought 25%, sometimes maybe 40%. But the challenge is we had a trade agreement with China. And um, well, three years ago, our trade deficit was $380 billion. In the meantime, as part of this equivalence, they were going to buy so much material from us, raw material, so much grains. Anyway, they didn't. And that's the beginning of the story. Now, what does that mean for companies? The political challenges became business challenges for companies. And what, <laughs> when, let's look at Apple. Apple, 90% of their, their revenue, I rephrase that, 90% of their iPhones, which is their major source of revenue, came from China. What are they going to do? And a lot of companies in the U.S., a lot of companies throughout the world started seeing this as a challenge. The expression that the Europeans right now use is de-risk. This is very big in the EU. It's a word that I never even had heard of. But the EU, basically twice the market of the U.S., 800, billion, 800 million people, wants to de-risk China. And the question is, how is, and this is a big part of today's talk, how are companies going to deal with that? So a little history lesson. Um, and again, I'm looking at China specifically, but we can look at other countries if you've got questions. 10 years ago in China, um, their manufacturability, most of the companies were 9001 certified. Good level of quality, compliance-based. Um, they, in terms of manufacturing, you could see the, the breadcrumbs. They are beginning to become world-class. So let's look at what happened in terms of 10 years ago and now. Now China has world-class manufacturing operations, AI, uh, their IoT, Internet of Things, which is almost every product has a smart component to it, is world-class. Been to a couple of their plants. I'm just simply amazed of the differences from 10, 20 years ago to where they are now. Operational excellence. 10 years ago, most of their operational excellence included things like statistical process control, maybe first article inspection, now they're using Lean Six Sigma, robotics, AI. Basically, they have world-class operations, probably the best in the world. I haven't seen in some cases what anything comparable in the West 
to what I've seen in Shenzhen, China. 10 years ago, I would say their technology and design was acceptable. Um, when I would go to China and I would ask for, and I was reviewing products, quality products. Again, 10 years ago, large companies would outsource many of their uh, supplier quality operations to our company. So it was our job to basically um, look at the products, conduct audits, not only quality audits, but operational audits, financial audits of these suppliers. So maybe 10 years ago, I would say that the Chinese design technology was acceptable. Now, Chinese plants use digital twins, finite element. In other words, they're very sophisticated. The quality, uh, maybe 10 years ago, had a CPK uh, capability index of one. Uh, CPK of one is probably three defects or three non-conforming items per thousand. Now they're looking at parts per million quality level. CPK of 2.0, perhaps even higher. But the point is, in a 10-year span, China, in terms of quality, has really become world-class. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, 10 years ago, their delivery of products was within acceptable windows. Uh, if you'd asked me four years ago, pre-COVID, their delivery of products, containerization was just in time. In other words, no buffer inventories. Now, post-COVID, there's still problems. And the problems largely mean um, <laughs> the delivery of products uh, have more variability. And again, when I use the word variability in the risk language, it means risk. The cost of items is interesting. 80 years ago, and again, this is, this is variable. Uh, compared to the West for a comparable product, the cost of manufacturing design, let's call it the total cost of ownership, was maybe 80% lower than the US. Now, because of the rising costs in China, the higher cost in containerization and moving product, uh, the cost differential might be 20% lower, maybe 30%. Again, this varies. A lot of the, this data is, uh, <laughs> since we sign NDA, NDAs, non-disclosures, we really can't talk about specifics, but these are averages. But you can see China in terms of manufacturability, design quality delivery is really um, world-class. So what's that, what does that mean for companies, companies in the US and the EU? Um, they have to basically change their OEM business model. Now, OEM is original equipment manufacturer, and I'm really talking about brand owners, large companies. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, they focused on managing the brand. Now, companies need to secure their brand and, more importantly, secure their IP. Uh, five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, a lot of companies outsourced their product design to suppliers. Now, because design is an IP issue, uh, meaning intellectual property, they want to retain control of that. So they're bringing a lot more design in-house. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, and 
probably 80% of the manufacturing in many companies was outsourced. Outsourced specifically offshore. Many companies now, especially um, our OEMs that are exposed. Now, exposure is another term of risk are exposed in Asia, specifically China, they're reevaluating the make or buy decision. And we're going to talk a lot about that because 30 years ago, 20 years ago, every company had was really challenged in terms of the make or buy decision. And they didn't touch it for 15 years. A lot of companies said, oh, we don't have the capabilities in-house. Let's outsource that to a key supplier, key strategic supplier. And oh, by the way, not only would we outsource it, but we're going to single source it. And both of those decisions, outsourcing and single sourcing, are risky decisions. The other thing that's changing in terms of a business model, supplier business model, is that a lot of the testing of the products was done externally. Why? You're manufacturing, designing in a uh, in China or in Vietnam, India. And of course, you would find a local independent uh, tester to test the products. Now, more and more, we're seeing that products are being tested internally in the host country. The other thing that we're finding is a lot of companies 10, 20 years ago would sell products. Now, because of political and economic pressures, there's an equivalency. Um, and we're gonna talk about that a lot later on. So what we have are new sourcing rules, especially in terms of the make or buy decision. The old sourcing rule was offshore, preferably buy offshore. Now it's made in the USA or onshoring. Um, another rule or almost heuristic. Heuristic is a simple way to make a decision. And this decision was based on, if you don't have the internal capabilities, outsource it to a world-class supplier. Now, 10 years ago, that made a lot of sense because otherwise you're gonna have to build from the OEM's point of view, you're gonna have to build that internal capability. And a lot of companies didn't want to. So what did they wanna do? Instead of investing internally, they basically had the supplier invest in quality, machining, design. So now if you're gonna outsource and a lot of companies are, you know, can't bring those capabilities internal, they're gonna source. But now instead of single sourcing, they're gonna source in multiple countries. Not only that, but they're gonna have multiple suppliers of the same product. Why? To diversify risk. Now, for many years, there were a whole bunch of rules of thumb. One of them was lean out your company. Another one was lean out your supplier base. Another one was no inventories. And again, a lot of that came from Six Sigma. A lot of that came from lean. And great ideas, don't get me wrong. A lot of them originated from Toyota Production System, TPS. And there were good rules, rules of thumb. But now because of risk, the lens is changing. The decision-making assumptions are changing. The boundary rules are changing. So now 
the old rule used to have be just-in-time inventory. In other words, zero inventory. Now we're going to have just-in-case contingencies. So now, what does that mean? We're going to have buffer inventories. We're going to have internal inventories. And again, inventories are a form of waste. They're a form of cost. And again, the rules are changing. Now, we cover this already. Um, the old rule was lean manufacturing. Now we need buffer inventories. Now, why? What happens if uh, one of your container ships takes two months because of a Suez issue to reach the US? You don't have product, supply product for your key. Yes, and especially if it's a key product for your manufacturing operations. What happens? Your manufacturing goes down. You don't have goods to sell, especially if you don't have a So what's the solution? Buffer inventory. What does that mean? That the OEM, the point where you're manufacturing or assembling products, you're going to have inventories there. Again, that's a cost. That's a waste. And this is something that's becoming much, much more prevalent. 10 years ago, we had a lot of mechanical products. Now, almost every product, uh, let's say a vehicle, that's an obvious one. A vehicle now is connected to the manufacturer and the software periodically is updated. The point is almost every piece of product has some type of embedded software in it. And that software basically has rules, has instructions, and quite often the supplier does want to share source code. If they don't share source code, that's a risk, a risk to the OEM or the brand owner. The other thing that's happening is, oh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the supplier had an ISO 9001 certification, that would be enough, would be enough for a commodity supplier. For high risk, high value suppliers, our company would essentially evaluate them periodically, probably once a year. Now, what we see more and more is what we would call supplier forensic evaluations. Not only are we looking at the quality, not only are we, we, we require ISO 9001 certification, we are looking at other certifications, 14,001, 45,001. Then we're looking at the product as in terms of manufacturing, how's it made? What are the CPKs for critical characteristics? What are the FEMAs? We wanna see the FEMAs that are uh, developed and we wanna see if there were any recurring problems. In other words, did the FEMA take care of the root cause or was it just simply, simply symptomatic? We wanna see the cost of ownership, the cost of quality. In the last probably four or five years, now we have to see what the business side looks like. Uh, what's the cost of manufacturing? In terms of design, when we do a forensic audit, looking at the product itself isn't going to be good enough. We might have to take a sample of the products and actually put it through a physical or chemical type evaluation. If it's a mechanical product, sometimes we want to look at the failure modes. Uh, we might want to do an FEA. Now, we won't do it, but we'll hire our lab in the host country to do a finite element 
analysis. The point is, in the new sourcing rules, depending upon the type of supplier and the type of product, the level of verification, the level of ver validation is higher. And essentially what we're doing is we're moving from a quality focus to a risk focus in managing suppliers. So here's the big question that a lot of companies are looking at. And by the way, a decision point that they really haven't looked at in 20, maybe even 30 years. Now, 30 years ago, it was a simple decision. Are we going to make or buy? Let's buy it. Why? Because we don't want to invest internally. We're going to go to suppliers, a world-class supplier. We'll even invest in them, like Foxcom or other suppliers that, um, that uh, Apple has done. The problem is, if we rely upon the supplier for design, manufacturing quality, we've basically offshored the product and we've offshored the risk, you know. Uh, as the brand owner, we still own the risk for reliability and quality, but the decision modes, the decisions are no longer ours. They're really up to the supplier. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So we're seeing more and more companies now having are being challenged with the make or buy decision. And what's happening is that the sourcing lens now is really risk-based. And what's happening is more and more companies are developing new risk models. Now, this thing on the right <laughs> has four elements. So it starts with access risk. This really should be assess risk, control risk, review controls. So identify, assess, control, and review risks. These are called RMFs, risk management frameworks. Now, there are probably, I'm going to discuss two of the risk management frameworks. One is ISO 31000. It's a light, what we would call enterprise risk management model. Um, the question you'll probably have is, are there any supply chain risk management models? There are, but most of them are based upon the ISO 31000. And the second one is called the COSO. ERM model. COSO is an acronym for Committee of uh, Sponsoring Organizations. Those are the two big risk frameworks that are being used in supply chain risk management. And if you Google them, you can get a lot of information. So let's talk about the four ways, or four strategies of managing supplier risk. One is accepting the risk. Second is diversifying the sourcing risk. The third one is sharing the sourcing risk. And the fourth one is managing, mitigating, or controlling. Now, those three words are very similar. Manage, control, or mitigate sourcing risks. They're used interchangeably. And we're going to talk about each one of these. Now, it's interesting. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. And all of a sudden, there's an article there on sourcing from China. And I'm reading the article. And in the article just last week, they mentioned a new way, a new method, a new strategy for managing uh, supplier risks. So I'll cover a lot of these. 
So the first one I'm going to talk about is accepting sourcing risk. If you're dealing with a supplier of what we would call commodity items, think of a gear maybe, or think of a fastener. The fastener is not used in any critical operation. It's not used in a, in a nuclear power plant. It's just a regular fastener. Uh, would I basically uh, do a forensic audit or an evaluation of the supplier? Probably not. So what would my decision point be? I'd continue using that offshore supplier because just in case of that supplier raised prices or they went out of operation, I could get a, uh, a threaded fastener probably in China, I mean, excuse me, in Vietnam, India, Europe, or Mexico. It's not important to me. So in other words, I'll accept that risk of a commodity supplier. Another thing is, um, in terms of accepting risk, I might simply reevaluate the suppliers and developing internally a new business and sourcing model. It's not a big deal. In other words, I live with the situation that I have with that supplier. Now, it's important to mention a lot of these rules are rules of thumb. You have to tailor every one of these to the situation, to the context. Uh, now, what do I mean by the context? Where's the supplier located? What are you buying from the supplier? What type of business agreements do you have with the supplier? Anyway, there are a lot of decisions. These are basically just what we would call ways, rules of thumb to deal with suppliers. The other thing you'll see is you can take accept risk and you can take manage risk and you can combine them in some type of form. In other words, there are variations of each one of these rules of thumb. Another thing you can do with a supplier is you have an agreement, what we would call a bilateral economic uh, concession. The supplier may raise costs by 20% and you'll say, no, I'm not gonna, I can't live with that. My margins as the OEM will basically become very thin. This is what we can do. Uh, we can share costs with you. We can take 10% of that and you take the other 10% and we can live with that. Or we can take the 20% and project that over four years. So the cost increases will be 5% per year or there will be a cost of living, a COLA increase. So you can negotiate with the supplier. Another thing you can do as the OEM is, and this is part of accepting the risk, is okay, the supplier raises, raises the price to 20%. I'll raise my prices to my customers by a similar amount. In other words, I'll just simply pass the cost on to the consumer, to the customer. And that's what's happening. That's one reason why we have a lot of inflation in the US and in the West, is that there've been a lot of price increases throughout the supply chain. Some of them are, are out of this world. For example, containers. Container from China <laughs> has gone up, um, golly, four times. Um, Give you another example. Four by eight sheets of plywood. This is regular plywood. Uh, went up to $100 a sheet last summer. And now they're running around $23, you know, five times less. Um, so one way to 
accept the risk is just simply pass it on to your customer. Um, another way is for costs to be uh, shared throughout the supply chain. In other words, if a supplier, sub-supplier, tier one, excuse me, tier two, three, or four raises costs, then it basically is reflected throughout the supply chain. And so a tier two supplier may raise a cost. That cost is raised to the T1 supplier. And then finally it's raised to the, or shared with the, with the, with the OEM, which pushes it out to the consumer. Another way to accept sourcing risk is to change your lens for risk. In other words, in purchasing for every category or material category, you have a risk tolerance. The risk tolerance is for quality. For example, a risk tolerance might be an AQL acceptable quality level for a 5% instead of 5% you might say, okay, I'm gonna change that to 10%. Now, when you're looking at a product level risk tolerance, that's really at the product transactional level. You can change your risk tolerance for a process by changing it from, oh, instead of 1.33, I'm willing to accept 1.0. In other words, I'm willing to accept a higher level of nonconformities. The other thing you can do is you can change your risk tolerance for the entire supplier. So what does that mean? Uh, most quality, most reliability professionals focus on the product risk or the process risk, but you can also change the risk tolerance for the enterprise, for the supplier. In other words, instead of having a, what we would call total cost of ownership of X, you're gonna say, okay, with that supplier, that I'm buying products, maybe bundled products even. Not only am I buying uh, hard products, but I'm buying services all bundled into one transaction. I'm willing to say, okay, I'm willing to accept a total cost of ownership instead of $1 million, $1.1 million. In other words, raise the threshold of the relationship dollar value. Another thing you can do, especially with commodity products, and the example I brought up earlier was the threaded fastener, is you can develop alternate sourcing strategies. So instead of having a single source in China, you can have multiple sources or a prime in China and acceptable source in Mexico, for example, and change that buy decision between those two suppliers. And then finally, in terms of accepting, you can basically source domestically, especially if you've got high risk or high value products. And this is one of the things that I guess I'm seeing more of, especially in Asia. Now, this is more from uh, <laughs> from the supplier's perspective and from the customer's perspective, meaning the OEM. I, I've seen this a couple of times, but we're seeing this more. Companies, OEMs are willing to game the system. Uh, there's political pressure. Let's give you a hypothetical. There's a political 
there's a lot of political pressure on a large name brand company. You can think NVIDIA, for example, who supplies chips that are used for AI. And NVIDIA is under a lot of political pressure in the US not to supply those chips to China. But here's the challenge. Um, they're basically just announced that because of the federal pressure, uh, their revenue and their market cap is gonna go down. It's called material exposure. So what's happening is in some cases, companies are willing to gamify the system. In other words, the products are still made in the US, but they're transshipped somewhere else and they're shipped to China. China plays the same game. They'll make the products, send them to Vietnam. Vietnam will repackage them, re-stencil them, say made in <laughs> Vietnam and then ship it to the US. A lot of gamifying being done in the sourcing industry these days. And it takes two to play or multiple parties to play. The second bucket that you can do is you can diversify your sourcing risk. You could basically look at your current business model. You can look at your current make or buy decision and say, does this make sense? If it doesn't make sense, what are you going to do? Diversify your risk. Instead of having all of your eggs in a China basket, for example, you're going to have your eggs in China, India, Vietnam, maybe even Mexico. And what you're doing is you're hedging or spreading the risk among many suppliers. That's what many companies are doing right now. You're looking at look, you, another way of diversifying your risk is you look, look at your, your domestic sourcing options. Instead of buying stuff or product from 6,000 miles away, is it a better decision to basically look for domestic manufacturing sources or look at Mexico? You can get those products over the border quickly, uh, relatively close, similar languages. Um, you can visit the suppliers much easier than visiting them in China. The amount of risk exposure for a domestic supplier or one in Mexico is much lower. And you start making the decision. If we bought the costs, if we bought the product in China and it was half as much, but the containers cost four times as much, that's 400% more to ship it from China to the US, could we maybe save money and make a better decision by sourcing from Mexico or even manufacturing internally? Anyway, a lot of those discussions are being made right now. This is interesting. Um, more, it used to be 9001 would be the, uh, the would be the minimum requirement or the maximum requirement for a supplier. They had that ticket punched, boom, they were good to go. In other words, they could supply products. 9001 is just simply the entry level for a lot of suppliers. Um, customers now are looking using looking at and using new assurance methods. And we discussed one of them already, doing forensic audits of suppliers. Um, another thing they're doing, and we're seeing the, uh, more and more companies doing this, they're reviewing every sourced product category. In other words, they're taking their buys for, uh, say, 
raw materials. They're looking at threaded fasteners. They're looking at high-risk products. And they're going back and looking at the make-or-buy decisions for every product category. They haven't done that in 10 years. And all of a sudden, new skills have to be brought into the company. Um, the other decision in terms of diversifying risk is, do we want to develop actually domestic suppliers? We're seeing that in the chip industry right now. Um, I was in Beaverton, which is outside of Portland, and Analog is building new fabs. Intel is building new fabs, not only in the US, but all over the world. Uh, the new sourcing definitions, NVIDIA, for example, we just talked about them. Um, the sourcing rules are changing for high-risk products, and they're changing very quickly, not only in the US, but throughout the world. And we're just going to go through these a little bit. Um, what we're seeing, especially from China, are the two preferred production areas are going to be Vietnam and India. India, because language spoken there by many is uh, English. Uh, the second thing is Vietnam and India have very good workers who are very, very fast in terms of being able to learn new technologies. The other option that companies are looking at is manufacturing the product in-house and in terms of delivery, just in case. Again, just in case deliveries are deliveries that have buffer inventories throughout the supply chain. And we just talked about that. So the third option for managing risk is share the sourcing risk. So in other words, we have, for example, tariff costs that can be shared with the OEM, that's the brand owner, with first tier, maybe even second, third tier suppliers. You can cascade your supply sharing costs down the supply chain. Um, Nowadays, you can source disruption insurance. Now that's interesting. A lot of the disruption insurance out there deals with software. The problem is software insurance has basically doubled this year. I know because I've been looking at it <laughs> that we need it. And other thing is that it's very, very hard to get. And why is that important? Because almost every product now has embedded software. The supplier is not willing to share soft is not willing to share their source code or their AI code. So what happens is that the OEM has to buy insurance to cover that. And again, this is sharing the risk. When you buy insurance, you're sharing the risk with the insurance company. Um, this is another big issue. Uh, AI especially, um, IP and design is being brought in-house. And here's the challenge. Uh, a lot of companies where they outsource their design and manufacturing uh, don't have the capabilities anymore. And as many of them are getting into, is getting, are getting into AI, uh, AI source code is not shared. For example, a big challenge right now is the federal government is looking at TikTok and they want to see TikTok's algorithms and source code. 
Tech Talk says no. So anyway, a lot of big issues there. The other thing in terms of sharing risks is we're seeing more requirements put on suppliers and suppliers are not ready for it. A lot of suppliers have been very successful doing what they do well. In other words, they have the capabilities, they have the quality, they have the design, and they really resent the OEMs, the customers coming to them and saying, I want to see this, I want you to do that. And there are a couple other things companies are doing. Reevaluating the make or buy decision. Uh, they're reevaluating suppliers based on risk. And again, risk in terms of quality, risk in terms of uh, the enterprise. You know, well, they're looking at risk in terms of quality, delivery, cost, design, technology. Then they're evaluating risk at the transactional level, process level, and the enterprise level. So in other words, they're looking at risk in terms of a matrix capabilities, supplier capabilities. And they're adding further supplier controls. And we've talked about them. Interestingly, Internet of Things. Almost every product these days is an Internet of Things. In other words, it has smarts attached to it. The smarts two years ago were probably, uh, you know, just simply having the capability of communicating with the OEM. Now the smarts are what we would call AI generative smarts. Uh, that's one of the issues that we're contending with as a company is how do we audit AI? And we're gonna have three books coming out on that this summer. So that might be another lecture if, <laughs> if uh, Fred gives me the ability to do these. So let's talk about the fourth way to manage suppliers. Managing suppliers are also called mitigating, treating, or controlling suppliers. And this is probably the main way that a lot of companies are working with suppliers in terms of risk. One way is developing IP agreements with suppliers. Uh, we talked about this, obtaining source code. Pushing OEM requirements to second tier third tier suppliers. Now, what do I mean by second tier? Uh, I'm the OEM, I have a supplier, that supplier is the first tier. That supplier, the first tier has suppliers, that's called the second tier. Anyway, so on down the chain. Another one is ensure product traceability. It's very hard to see what is the second tier supplier doing, why? Because let's say you have 100 first tier suppliers that grows exponentially so that the second tier base all of a sudden becomes a thousand. And then you go down to the third tier, that thousand becomes 10,000. It really takes a Pareto decision of scoping your supplier base, scoping the suppliers that you can manage, scoping the ones that are the critical few from the insignificant many. That's essentially the Pareto rule. And that's one of the hardest decisions. What suppliers are you gonna manage? And what another part is, what's, which suppliers wanna be managed? Most of them don't. The other thing in terms of this is providing a chain of assurance, chain of custody, a chain of risk controls. 
we're seeing more and more of that. Why? Because products and their deliveries are becoming material, material to an organization. Now, what do I mean by materiality? If you go into any financial, in the West, we call them uh, 10Qs, 10Ks, and they're financial statements. Let's say that you have a company that you're interested in, Google, Apple, 10K, Google, Apple, 10Q. And when you pull up that document, you'll see that those are documents that are reported to a government. And they have page after page after page of risks. They have to. And those are called material reporting risks. Not material quality, material product. They're called material reporting. Interestingly, every company now reports their supplier risk threshold. Why is that important? Because if you're not managing your supplier risks, that's going to impact your financials, your revenue. For example, what happens if you've got a product shipment from a sole source supplier and that plant all of a sudden goes down and can manufacture products? If you can't manufacture products, you can't sell the products, you can't make money from those products, that's going to impact your financials. That has to be reported to the investor community through your 10K, 10Qs. That has to be reported, in other words. Supply chain risks, as well as AI risks and uh, cyber risks are the biggest risks that companies have these days. And they have to be reported. So what's happening is much like a chain of custody, we now have a chain of assurance and risk controls. And that's a new concept for quality and reliability professionals. In other words, we need to have a full chain of verifiable, validatable evidence in terms of the decision-making for suppliers. Brand new. Um, it's concepts that I'd never worked with before. It's called siloing offshore suppliers. This is a term that I just got from the Wall Street Journal this week. And that basically means that if you have a supplier in China, you're going to limit the risk exposure from that supplier. There's a lot more to it. I, I've never done this before, but this is a new idea. So let's recap what we've just talked about. Managing supplier risks in China. We have really two different perceptions. China is basically using sourcing as a way to influence politics. In the US, we're still a little bit reactive. We're, <laughs> we wanna have a digital curtain, much, much like we have a, had the iron curtain with Russia. We're basically developing the digital curtain with China. Trade has been weaponized. And we're looking, again, we're looking at the same thing, meaning US and China, basically much of the world, we're looking at the same situation and interpreting it differently. The U.S. wants trade equivalence, meaning what we buy from you, you should buy from us. China wants a largely weaponized trade. Um, we're developing new sourcing models. China basically is looking at uh, social cohesion. Um, we're looking at technologies such as AI. They're looking at it, AI in terms of surveillance. We're looking at it in terms of making more money. 
<laughs> anyway, we talked about that. Um, but is very similar is growth in China and growth in US and frankly in every country is gonna be domestic based sourcing. Why? Because made in the USA creates value. When you create value, you create jobs, you create opportunity. So here's the future of supply chain management. This is from Gartner and you can see uh, the future of supply management is gonna be basically supply chain risk management. Uh, Fred is gonna share this with the uh, attendees or whoever wants to look at it. So you can go through this, but I wanna speak, you know, take care of questions if you have any. <laughs> Here's a global sourcing metaphor. I live in Portland, Oregon in the US. We have a small bakery down the street. It's Mize Bakery. You can see their bag that they give customers. And what does it show? made in the USA. And I think that's a metaphor for what we would call reshoring, reshoring the US, reshoring in China, reshoring in India, reshoring in Mexico. So thank you for the opportunity to speak. Um, if you've got any thoughts, here's my email address, reach out to me, would very much appreciate it. So back to you, Fred. All right, thanks, Greg. Um... I think Carl had one comment that I, you know, it wasn't a question so much, but the concepts about the trade wars basically is hopefully it can be resolved peacefully. And I'd agree with that. It's a, another set of hurdles, but a lot of the stuff you talked about are, are ways businesses are, you know, dealing with it without having to completely shut down all trade altogether. So it's, it's lots of options. I think you, I lost count at about 30 different things to do or consider <laughs> <laughs> well we could you want me to talk about that for a second yeah just a second we got a couple minutes that's all and and for the folks that are online if you want to chime in there's chat windows open and i'm also taking a look at the q a uh, box also so when i got into this business many years ago the top quality level was basically a manager. I was a manager. The head of purchasing was a manager too. Quality went to become a director level VP. And then now largely most quality positions are managed, second level manager or maybe a director level. Supply chain went from manager, director, senior director, VP, and in most companies, it's a SVP or an EVP position. That's how important it is. And the other thing is it's no longer purchasing, it's supply management or supply risk management. So this function now has become really, really important. You know, for lots and lots of companies, it's a major, transfer of funds just to make their product it's you know you buy a widget and you add a little bit to it and sell it at a profit but the the bulk of that cost of goods sold is the sending checks to suppliers yes and a couple of years ago i saw the numbers were running about 80 percent meaning the cost of manufacturing was 80 percent was many was outsourced yeah huge amount 
And again, with that amount, more risk. <laughs> All right. No, I'm not seeing any, but we're going to have this uh, on a recording. And you got the, your email on there. So um, it will, you know, if you're watching this or listening to it as a, uh, a recording, you can um, chime in later. And I know we get quite a bit of an audience on the recording side, which we appreciate. So Carl thought, would have thought, any thoughts on how this is related to Russia and the Ukrainian conflict? I mean, I, the first thing that comes to my mind, Carl, is the uh, wheat and commodity prices are associated with wheat and wheat products. Um, we certainly saw, and oil too, both of those uh, commodities uh, had a huge impact. Um, but think about if your company, you know, Greg, I don't. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Is that, and I heard a report on it recently. Was that U.S. companies operating in in Russia? And I'm thinking of McDonald's, for example. Basically, <laughs> sold all of their properties. Just said, all right, we're out of business here. We're selling everything, and at a major loss. And and um, some companies took billions of dollars of losses, and that was because of a political event. You know, not to minimize the invasion of Ukraine, but it, the the risk is is that yeah, all of a sudden the barriers could go up, and it's not politically correct, or you know, or it's even illegal to do business in another country, um, which is a little bit beyond the supply chain, but it's related. If you're so sourcing stuff from from Russia, I imagine that's gotten a lot more difficult lately. You know, there's that famous picture of elephant and a blind person has got their arm around the leg and another person's holding the tail. Um, this whole trade issue or sourcing issue now, different people around the world are seeing the same thing and interpreting it differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it should be just simply, you know, we've got free trade, uh, we have a balance of payments. We want to make sure that, you know, everybody is sort of a rising tide of effect. And what's happening is, unfortunately, trade is being weaponized. Um, there now is a bilateral or trilateral structure of, oh, shucks, uh, China, Russia, Iran in one satellite and then Europeans in the US in another. And folks like India, even uh, you know, even the EU is trying to figure out <laughs> how are they gonna balance that? Um, and something that should be simple, rephrase that, something that should be fair and transparent and simple like sourcing is now becoming a political and geoeconomic issue, unfortunately. Yeah, I go back to Carl, your first thought is that hopefully it can all be resolved you know, yep. peacefully. That would be the way to do it. Um, yeah, it's, you know, Greg, I think some of the problems is what's considered fair um, through <laughs> these different lenses. I think the metaphor of the, is, I think it's a famous story about seven blind men and, and an elephant. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, more to come. There's no doubt about it. And I think 
Greg, you and I in our discussions is just one of many disruptions in all the things that we do uh, and, and to be monitored. There's no doubt about it. Well, I hope this thing adds value and is of interest to your, uh, to your readers and uh, viewers. You know, I can take any one of those, whatever it is, 30 different options and do a one hour webinar, you know, much <laughs> like you want to halt and SPC yeah. and Bemis, you know. Yeah, it's a lot more there. detail. Yeah, so if you're, you know, thanks for everybody that joined us today. And if you've got comments or questions and ideas of what you'd like Greg to get into more depth on, you know, please do let Greg or I know and we'll get it on the calendar. Um, but not just supplier risk man management, there's risk management in general, which is a huge topic and reliability and quality certainly play a role in it. So it's a, it's an area that many of us touch into or should be aware of. And so let's uh, tap into Greg's knowledge and background and, and uh, extend this series out into what's useful for you. So let us know. All right, well. Thanks, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity. And